This week, we have a tragic teen love triangle that turns two promising cadets into stone-cold killers in 90s Texas. I'm Jesse Prey. And I'm Andy Cassette. And this is Love Murder. Yay! So welcome back. This is our second episode. Uh, We report on stories at the intersection of love, lust, and crime. Ooh, Chessie. That was really (laughs) nice. Uh Love love is our game, and I don't know where I was going with that. Murder is our fun. I don't know. Ooh, uh, priorities are out of sort <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> priorities are really out of sort. Um, so today I have a very interesting, highly publicized murder that I had actually never heard about. I'd like to, first of all, give a shout out to the awesome Reddit community, uh, the true crime community there, because I wrote something a couple weeks ago and I asked them to post their favorite love triangle crimes. And this one came up and I actually can't believe I hadn't heard about it before because it's fascinating, it's tragic, it's got love, lust, teenagers who are doomed. You don't hear are that you ready day. for this? I think so. Yeah. Actually, I don't no, know if I'm ready, but it's, it's called... <laughs> well, let's jump in anyway. <laughs> I'll go for it, you know. <laughs> okay. So this is the Texas Cadet Murders, otherwise known as, to me... Romeo and Murderette. So um, I read an excellent book called Blind Love by Peter Mayer, um, which is where I got probably 90% of my information. I also checked Wikipedia and Murderpedia, which are always great resources. Um, There's a ton of media on this case. I watched the People Magazine Investigates on ID, which, by the way, buying the subscription to the Investigation Discovery Channel on Amazon has been one of my best purchases in my life. I have to say, Jesse, I'm kind of shocked you didn't already have that. (laughs) (laughs) I know, me too. (laughs) I also watched the uh, 1996 made-for-TV movie called Love's Deadly Triangle. Gotta love that. The Texas Cadet Murder. Oh, it's it's so ridiculous. It's again like last week I was like I suggested you watch Scorn Love Kills. Hi, this is one that you should probably play a drinking game to because it has every like lifetime movie trope in it. So, we start off in 1995 in the suburbs of Dallas Fort Worth area. Um, we are going to start talking about a character who's very central to the story. He's our Romeo. This is Mr. David Graham. He's an 18-year-old rising senior when this starts. He's played by this guy, David Lipper, who none of you probably know um, in the movie. But in my movie, he would be played by like Matt Damon, (laughs) Ethan Hawke, baby, but who's really tall and buff. So imagine Matt Damon and Ethan Hawke like together, probably collectively what they weigh. And he's 6'2". And he's this military hunk. He's got a, uh, you know, this short military buzz cut. And he's this really singularly focused youth. He takes all honors classes. He's in National Honor Society. He is the battalion commander in the junior ROTC. He runs track and cross country. And he's especially devoted to the Civil Air Patrol which is the U.S. Air Force Auxiliary Organization that was founded in 1941 to mobilize the nation's civilian avian resource. Okay, sorry. (laughs) 
aviation resources. Avian resources would be that he marshals all of the birds to fight for America. Which would be awesome. It is, (laughs) which would be so cool. That would be like a Cinderella on steroids when she sings to the birds, only getting them to fight something. Whoa. Um, But unfortunately, that's not the story I'm telling today. (laughs) I kind of wish it was. Um, Anyway, so they mobilized the nation's civilian aviation resources for World War II. So in this respect with the teenagers, it actually works as a feeder system for the Air Force and a training ground for kids who are interested in going into the Air Force. Okay. So David's been into this since he was a very, very little kid. His parents took him to an air show when he was only in first grade, and he like immediately looked at his parents and was like, that's what I want to do. This is what I'm going to do with my life. He wrote a letter to the Air Force shortly thereafter telling them about his intentions to join them when he was old enough. And apparently his mom has an entire drawer full of all these pictures he made of airplanes and of himself in uniform. Like he knew from an extremely early age that he wanted to do this. So when he's old enough at 12 years old, he joins the South Fort Worth Squadron of the Civil Air Patrol. And by 14, he has his pilot's license. Whoa. Is that no. that you can fly a plane? I'm pretty sure it should be at least. <laughs> like, that yeah, is I feel like serious power to give to really a child. Young. Yeah, for sure, must for sure. Um, it must be like when you have your, um, what is it, your temporary license when you're, you know, when someone know, adult I has to be in the car that you, you can have a pilot's license before you can have a driver's license? Like you need to make sure there's an adult in the plane with you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, so he's unbelievably committed to this. He, like I said, joins his high school's ROTC program. And he's known for being incredibly kind and respectful and a fantastic leader. And he especially sticks up for the young women in the program. One of the other um, women in the program said that he wouldn't let just anyone boss us around. And another girl said he was the most caring and respectful and respected person I've ever met. So he's well-regarded and well-loved. Um, so at the Civil Air Patrol, which I'm not sure if they ever call it CAP, but I might call it CAP because I have to mention it 8 million times throughout the story. So forgive me if you guys don't call it CAP. I'm just going to shorten it for uh, our listeners right now. He rises through the ranks and, and it kind of is a junior version of the Air Force. They He goes from an airman to a lieutenant to a captain to the cadet colonel very quickly. And he ends up being one of the most decorated cadet officers in the national history of the Civil Air Patrol. I mean, in his senior year, he's slated to receive the SPATS Award, which is the highest honor in CAP. And only 0.5% of all cadets earn this honor. And so it's very, very rare people reach this limit. And only a little over 2,000 cadets have won it since 1941. Whoa. Yeah. So he is basically the the cream of the crop. Yeah. Cream of of the cap. (laughs) Cream of the cap. So what could possibly derail this guy? I mean, he's so focused. He's been focused since he was seven years old on a accomplishing his dream. And, you know, this is the summer before his senior year. So he's just this close to getting into the Air Force Academy. Well, I think it's a tale as old as time. It's hormones and chicks, man. <laughs> so his friends trouble, all got trouble. All trouble and trouble, man. It's it's chicks, man. Um, his friends all look up to him, but they say that he starts to change the summer before his senior year. At the beginning of the summer, he allegedly loses his virginity while he's at a week-long international cadet program 
in Ottawa. According to what he tells his friends, it was with a young woman named Helen, who was a cadet with the Royal Australian Air Force. So he went down under. So yeah, so he comes back and he is obsessed with talking about Helen. He's obsessed with telling them about the sex he had. Um, So he's basically like Lonely Islands. I just had sex and it felt so good. But he's doing that nonstop with his friends. And they're just kind of getting annoyed with him. And they're like, dude, just find a girl in the U.S. and stop boring us with a story about like your lover who's like literally halfway around the world. And so around this time, he connects with the Juliet of our story, Diane Zamora. So Diane, yes, she's really beautiful, really smart. I feel like she, when I first saw her, I really thought of like Alyssa Milano, but that might've been because she was played by another charm sister. Um, And for our younger audience, I would say she's more of a Vanessa Hudgens. She's got dark hair, dark eyes. She's on the petite side. Diane is a few months younger than David. She's 17. She's the eldest of four kids. And she's a senior at Crowley High School, which is different from the high school that David goes to. He goes to Mansfield. Um, She's extremely bright and hardworking. People describe her as serious and independent. She is described as only caring about her scholastics. She's not interested in socializing or popularity, which really sets her apart from a lot of other teenage girls. Her parents don't have a ton of money and her dad is frequently out of work. So she really prioritizes her education So much so that she knows she needs to get a scholarship or she's definitely not going to be able to go to college or the Air Force Academy or anywhere else she dreams of. I was going to say, does she want to go to Air Force Academy? Yes. So this is basically, I'll get to like what her dreams are, but she's so focused that she carries around a spiral notebook and she writes about what grades she needs to get exactly in every single class and for her SATs to maintain her GPA to get a scholarship. Like she is laser focused on this. Um, So yeah, everyone says that, you know, she keeps to herself. She has no time for boyfriends or social life. Her parents are always financially in trouble and her dad is frequently out of work and her mother is a nursing student. So she really has to watch her little brothers too. So there's really not a lot of time beyond her extracurriculars that she's using to help to get into college and her scholastics and watching her brothers and sisters all the time. There's not a lot of time left over for fun for this girl. How many siblings does she have? She has three younger sisters and brothers. Yeah. And she's the oldest. Um, And she's the oldest. She's in student council, key club, National Honor Society, Masters of the Universe, which is a science club. So she's trying to pad her resume while also keeping her family together. Yeah. Okay. Uh, And so like David, something that they have in common is that she's known from a very early age what she wants to be when she grows up. She decides at nine Uh, that she wants to be an astronaut. So she writes to NASA to get brochures about how to start a career with them. And it turns out one of the best ways uh, to become an astronaut is to go to the Air Force Academy. So this is something they have in common. So by 13, she realizes that she needs to probably go to the Civil Air Patrol as it's the best way to get into the Air Force Academy and then therefore start her dream path to being an astronaut. Okay. So David and Diane have known each other for about three years before they start dating, and they've always gotten along. Um, Well, it hasn't been romantic because he's a super well-respected leader, and she has a hard time following the rules. Like, everyone says she's very, very independent, so it doesn't seem like military life might be perfect for her, but she sticks it out because she really wants the credentials on her resume. 
And he's such a good leader that he's really good at getting her to fall in line and be part of the group and he gets her involved again. So they end up developing somewhat of a mutual respect, even though she is a lot lower on the totem pole than he is within the organization. So the summer before their senior year, everything changes for them in so many ways, but absolutely changes the tenor of their relationship and why it goes from friendly to romantic and extremely romantic very soon. Number one, and this is a lot of my own conjecture, but I think it's because David has had his first sexual experience, which is this awakening to women. And I think he is compartmentalized so long to achieve his goals. And then he had this crazy experience with this Australian woman when he was in Canada. And all of a sudden he might be seeing Diane differently because she's a very beautiful girl. So there's definitely that. And then, which I think we can both understand. I mean, he's a teenage boy who just lost his virginity. I mean, can you even imagine? Yeah. And her too. I mean, she's, if she's a couple months younger than him, she's coming of age too. And I know a lot of people want to get that over with before they go to college or at least start hanging out with people who they want to have sex with for the first time. And so from her end, it's, I could see why there's a little bit of a attraction there too. He is also very alpha. He's very in control. He rules very well. He's well-liked and well-respected. And she's having a hard time in her home life, which I'm about to get to. So I feel like he represents consistency and support and the type of man that you would really look up to, you know? Yeah. And probably some control that she can't grasp at home if things are not well. Exactly. So that gets to the second point, which is they're bonding over their family's complicated love lives that are affecting them in their senior year. So David's mom, Janice, has left the family. Um, His two older siblings are already out of the house. So he's the last baby in the house. And she decides to leave the father. The father is blindsided. He is terribly depressed. And she just moves out. And I think that this affected David extremely poorly. He's the last kid in the house. So he's lost his siblings. They're already gone. And his mom Um, now. His dad and his mom, he's, his dad is like barely p- present because he's mega depressed. And, you know, in most of these situations, especially in 90s Texas, the mom takes the kid when yeah. she goes or stays with the kid and the dad goes. So I feel like he feels extremely abandoned by her at this point. Yeah. How could you not? I mean, I think you're, there's so many, like you were saying too, just with being that age and being a boy, having all of those feelings and hormones and all of that rushing through you while that's going on, it's, that could be devastating. It's so confusing. I think he really looked up to his parents' relationship as most kids before they realize the complexity of marriage do, you know, they're your stalwarts. You're like, they're just going to be together forever, you know? Yeah. Especially Uh, if they were actually blindsided. Yeah. And it seems like the dad was really surprised. Like he didn't see it coming at all. Was she having an affair? Not that I could find out. Really? But- I don't know. She could have been real discreet. So we don't know. Yeah, that's kind of crazy for the mom to leave, you know. There didn't have to be an affair. I mean, I think there's a lot of people that live in quiet sadness within marriages, especially ones that last a long time in the, you know, they're probably married in the 70s. David's life is crap, but Diane's life is way worse. I mean, it is turbulent as So Carlos, her dad, is an electrician, but he doesn't always have steady work. And her mom does her damn best to like go through nursing school and work like two other jobs to pay the bills. So she doesn't really have a choice but to 
you know, make Diane help raising the kids. And in um, Blind Love, Peter Meyer writes about her aunt saying, this is the sister of her mother, Gloria, Diane had to raise her brothers and sisters and she had to grow up too fast. She was starved for love. Diane was always seeking attention. I told my sister this. I told her that she needed to spend more time with her children. So that's really harsh coming from your sister. And I feel like obviously it was the most unfair to Diane, but it's a, it's also unfair to Gloria because it doesn't sound like she had much of a choice. And it doesn't sound like she's just being completely neglectful if she's actually trying to put herself through school while she has, what, four kids? Yeah, she has four kids and her husband doesn't have a job and it gets worse as it goes on. The, the only quality time the family had was when they went to her grandfather's church, which was her mother Gloria's father, which was a uh, Spanish-speaking evangelical church in East Fort Worth. And they went every Wednesday and Sunday, and it was a super fun experience for the whole family. They would get together and have barbecues afterwards. They would go to restaurants. They all participated in making the church great. Carlos, her father, played sax, and Diane sings in the choir. And so it becomes this like happy, safe haven place. And the only time she really gets quality time with her family until... A woman named Connie, who is in the process of leaving her abusive husband, begins attending, and she develops a crush on Carlos, Diane's dad, who is supposed to be very charismatic, and he's up there playing the sax, and they start connecting, and they end up having a torrid affair. The classic church affair. The classic finding your your affair partner at church. Come on. Come on, guys. guys. You can be better than this. So basically, Gloria finds out about this because one of her relatives sees them at a grocery store together, reports back, and Gloria just like unloads on Yeah, they were at a grocery store. Also, this is a very not sexy affair if they're going to grocery store together. Really? They were squeezing squeezing those tomatoes. (laughs) Getting get all hot in the seafood aisle. Oh God. All right. Let's let's do this. Gloria finds out she is real pissed and she brings Diane into it. Like she's telling her oldest teenager what her father's up to, how he's ruining their life. Like she really like confides in her, blames the dad, which you really, you can't do with kids. You really can't do. It's just super unhealthy for them. Also taking all this on with her three siblings that she's taking care of. This is the, this is basically going on. It starts going on, I think like her sophomore or junior year, but it continues into her senior year. Poor thing. So she's, she's still like a pretty young kid going through this. And the, their financial situation just worsens and worsens. Uh, in the matter of six years, the family loses two houses and files for bankruptcy four different times. So it's basically because her father will say he's going to get work or he's going to be at work, and instead he goes to Connie's house wow, to conduct so- his affair messed up. It's so shitty on so many levels, but she keeps, Gloria keeps like taking him back. Every time he comes back and he's like, baby, I made a mistake. She's like, oh, thank God you realized it. You're back again. And he's like, I'm going to get work and I'm going to be, you know, she keeps taking him back. She just needs a partner for these kids. I'm sure that on some level she realized that like it wasn't fair to Diane and she really wanted a partner. And like, I think when you're that tired and you're exhausted and like the thought of starting over, it's just impossible to think of trying to like divorce somebody and move on. Plus they're religious, you know, and they don't look kindly on divorce. Like she really believes through the power of prayer and like love that she can. That's what's always so crazy. They don't believe in divorce, but cheating is fine. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, that's what they always say. They say like anything can be forgiven, which is insane to me. So divorce should you know? be able to be forgiven then. Yeah, right. I agree. So at this point, Diane is holding down the fort. She's arbitrating between her parents, like trying to get her dad to come home or when they're arguing while he's home. She's like, you know, the judge and the mediator. She's raising her younger siblings. She is like packing and moving all of their crap. Like when they have to relocate, she's like, they have to move in with her grandparents for a little while. Like she's like doing all of this and keeping up her extracurriculars and her grades to the point where there are some nights that she has to study by candlelight or flashlight because her parents haven't paid the electric bill. Poor girl. This this poor baby. I mean, and she's doing everything right. Like she's working so hard. She doesn't drink. She doesn't do anything bad. She's not having sex. She's just a really good girl who's very focused on getting out of the situation and not having any sort of relationship like her parents, you know? Yeah. So it's during this period that like David and Diane really heat up because they're turning to each other. They're supporting each other during this like really confusing time in their life. And they get together and she brings home a boyfriend for pretty much the first time ever. And she's introducing him to her family. And everyone's kind of surprised because she's always said she wasn't going to have a boyfriend in high school because she just wanted to succeed. And they are immediately codependent. Like everyone notices that they're just like, it's not healthy how connected these two kids are. So her family doesn't love the relationship because he seems very standoffish, overly protective, and a little controlling. So when they have family parties, he's like always at her shoulder and making it like even uncomfortable. Like her aunt was talking about how she felt uncomfortable even hugging Diane because it was almost like he was this bodyguard who was standing there. I feel like we've all seen instances like this happen with people we love. Yeah, where all of a sudden they are like way too entwined and they're like whispering to each other and she just doesn't seem as lively as she could. And meanwhile, David's friends also don't really like the relationship either because she's an NCO, which is a non-commissioned officer. She's way lower on the totem pole than David. And there's actually an anti-fraternization rule in this organization between ranks. So he's like so much higher than her, which is like the real military. And it's kind of like in even in offices when they're like managers can sleep with managers, but they can't sleep with employees, you know? Well, that because that inserts the whole power dynamic that shouldn't be part of the relationship. Exactly. So his friends are like, this is really stupid and unprofessional on your part. And they like are losing respect for him because also she's not really great at being a member of the Civil Air Patrol. And she kind of screws off a lot. And now since he's her commanding officer, he lets her get away with it. And so his friends are kind of like, you are looking like weak and weird. And this is so not like you, you know? Where did that come from that she kind of is screwing off um, at Cap? She just never, she wanted to do it so she could accomplish her goals, but she just wasn't as meant for a military lifestyle as he was. Got it. So it just meant that like all of the drills and all of the things, like I don't, I don't know. I think her independent spirit made it very hard for her to be able to commit to that like singular, and I don't mean like mindless, because I think you have to be extremely mentally strong to be in the military, but uh, the be, being able to follow no matter what and be loyal and trust and not question, you know? I think also if this is a stepping stone for her career, if she actually just wants to be an astronaut and they're like, you have to do this in order to achieve being an astronaut, but it really is just kind of like a step in that direction. You won't necessarily have the same respect as someone like David, who's been training and wanting to do this since he, when he was 14, flying plane. Like he wants to be a 
you know, a pilot in the Air Force for the rest of his life. I mean, he wants to someday be like a general. That's his goal in life. Wow. Yeah. So so they're just different. It doesn't mean she's any less intelligent. It doesn't mean that she's less hardworking. I mean, think of everything she's had to accomplish. Also, them saying she's screwing off, maybe she's just fucking tired. Yeah. I mean, maybe she's tired. Think about what her life looks like. I could definitely see his bros pulling shit with that. He can't catch a break either because they gave him a hard time about the Aussie girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So they're just like, they made some comments about how they used to all ride together. Now like she rides in the cab of his pickup and they have to like sit in the bed to get rides with him. And oh, like, God. it's all so different for them. Yeah. And so I think that they're having a hard time with that. Also, he is now with her starting to drink which is like weird for both of them, but they're kind of like, yeah, they're starting to drink alcohol and they're like about to start having sex. And like, this is not the qualities that this type of organization looks at. And like within this small peer bubble, they also don't approve of it. It's not like a typical high school environment. These are all very regimented, controlled, yeah, disciplined people who like do not want the distraction of, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Or the repercussions. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you get busted somewhere like that, aren't there like major consequences? Major. Yeah. Major repercussions. So, So they're just kind of like, this doesn't seem like him. This is so weird. And so they're like isolating themselves more and more, which creates an even stronger us versus them mentality. This is where we're getting the Romeo and Juliet because everyone's against us, the Bonnie and Clyde type of thing where like nobody but us matters because nobody understands us. They start like creating their own like weird little secret language so they can say things to each other in person. And one of the things that they said (laughs) in public was greenish brown female sheep because it meant greenish brown is olive and female sheep is you. So they would say, I love you. I love you. Is like that not the most high school shit you've ever heard? Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty there. I was reading it to Nathaniel. That's my husband. And he's like, that makes me embarrassed to have been a high schooler. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I know you would say that shit to me. You'd be like, greenish brown, female sheep. And he's like, shut up. I probably would. Hey, there's way (laughs) worse things they could be doing right now. Yes. Like David starts pressuring her to have sex. And there's so many reasons. You should never pressure anyone to have sex. Like ever, not in a moment, not existentially, like people, even if you are married, you shouldn't have to, you know, pressure your partner. Like sex is something that should be equally and lovingly given. Yeah. And if you want to have sex so bad, do it yourself. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Guys, we have hands and sex toys for a reason. Nobody is left out in the cold these days. We're very Uh, lucky to have grown up during such a progressive time. Exactly. I mean, you can buy an entire sex doll. You can have a weird relationship. Maybe not weird. Maybe it's normal for you with your doll. You know, there's so many possibilities out there. Just don't try to pressure anyone into having sex is what we're trying to say. That's all we ask. That's all every woman asks. And also, you know what? You should get to know yourself. It's important to get to know what you like. Because then you'll be able to tell other people that much better. Exactly. Okay. That's our PSA for today. (laughs) Masturbation is great. 
Everyone should do it. Don't pressure people to have sex. Touch yourself. Be happy. There we go. There we go. Okay. So basically, she has like her entire life not wanted to have sex before marriage for a couple reasons. One is her religion, obviously. Number two is that she really feels like a lot of young women get very sidetracked by sex, even if they don't get in trouble, which two of her cousins apparently had gotten pregnant in high school and had to drop out. So she has, yeah, she has some cautionary tales in her own family. And she knew she wasn't going to be like that. She was like, I am going to get a scholarship. I'm going to be successful. I'm going to find the perfect person. And we are going to wait till marriage. This is, so when he, this person that she really, really loves and trusts is putting pressure on her. She's like, this is not the way I imagined it. No, I, I need mean, to be married to do this. Let's also not forget about the fact that her dad is actively cheating on her mom. She has to look at sex as a problem and never a solution, you know? So she's like, if we are married or when we're married, it's going to be fine. And he proposes. David. 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 <laughs> this is This is what happens when you tell teenagers they can't have sex until they're married, yeah. they get married. It needs to be safe <laughs> sex, not no sex. Safe sex. Like, yes. Guys, come on. Put a pile of condoms in your teenager's drawers and say, take them to the gynecologist or Planned Parenthood or wherever. Like, talk inform to them. them. Yes. Do not tell them that marriage, like sex before marriage is a sin or that they have to get married because I think everyone can agree the last thing we want our 17 and 18 year olds doing is getting married to somebody that they're going to hate in three years. I mean, (laughs) I think also though, like our generation has gotten so much better about like marrying older, having kids older, like really... Do you hear oh, him? I can hear Quincy. I don't know if you guys can hear that, but that's Andy's adorable cat. So he proposes to her, of course, without a ring to convince her to lose her virginity, and she goes for it. No. Yeah, she relents. She gives up this really important thing to her to keep this wonderful, what she thinks, man in her life, in her life. And she believes so strongly that they're going to be together, and she's so focused on this, that later she tells her mom that they're engaged. And her mom's like, why? (laughs) And she admits to her mom that they are having sex, but it's okay because they're going to get married. And her mom's like, well, I don't know, like you might find somebody else. Like you're only 17. Like, I don't want you to be stuck in this situation. They did end up having sex before marriage. Yes. She says to her mom, if I can't be Mrs. David Graham, then I will die as Miss Diane Zamora. So she's basically saying if he doesn't marry her after she lost her virginity to him, she's going to kill herself. It's a little dramatic. It's very dramatic. But this is really a window into how these kids are operating. What high hormones, high emotions, uh, they have very limited reasoning and logical skills, even for two kids who are so well-educated and so, you know, focused and talented, they're still kids. I mean, our brains aren't completely formed till they're 26. They're having sex. She's in love. They're even telling people that they're planning their wedding date. Like they have a date plan. This is in 1995. And they said their wedding date is August 13th, 2000. So that they're going to graduate from the Air Force Academy together and get married that August. Jesse, wait. So they 
their wedding date was like five years away. Yes. Yeah, so it's <laughs> 1995 and they're setting their wedding date for when they graduate the Air Force Academy. Is that how? I didn't think that. <laughs> no. Okay. I just want to no. make sure because that wasn't obviously. I think Diane wanted to have sex with him too. I mean, he's a really good looking guy. They're feeling very emotionally <laughs> connected. Yeah, he was really putting the pressure on her. And I think that she felt it was a compromise. If he set a date for their wedding and he proposed to her and he got a ring, which I guess he did have a ring at this point. It was just on layaway. Ladies, don't compromise. Um, yeah, don't compromise. So she's compromising her virginity and her morals and her ideals for this person that she's become extremely connected to. And we don't know, like, if this is just a toxic thing for both of them, if I don't necessarily know if either one of these kids are more damaged or more manipulative than the other one. I think very much like this is just a perfect storm of two kids who are very bright, but going through really hard things, clinging to each other and having some unhealthy tendencies come up. Yeah. September 26, 1995, tragedy strikes when Diane is driving David's truck home alone and she loses control of the pickup and it flips over several times. The worst part of this though is her left arm was hanging out of the truck through an open window and the truck goes over her hand. So she and lost rolls her onto hand. it a couple times. Uh very nearly. She's rushed to the hospital. She thank didn't God lose somebody her sees arm? it. No. The doctors have to reattach the skin that had been peeled back from three of her fingers. And for a while, they thought that she would they would have to amputate the whole hand. But instead, she just has to go through several operations and stay in the hospital for quite a while. So does that rule out being an astronaut? Kind of, but not really, as you'll see why. David spends all of his time at the hospital and she reveals to their fa- like her family that they're engaged. Like everybody knows this now. He's driving her to all of her rehab sessions. Now her family doesn't have a lot of money, of course, so he's buying her medications. He's paying a lot for her medical treatments. He has a part-time job at a grocery store. I think he he was apparently like he had a collection of hunting rifles that he sold at this point to help her financially. Um, he's even like helping her apply to the Naval Academy because it's, it becomes very clear. Like we talked about, like when you asked me about being an astronaut, she's not going to be able to face the Air Force's physical exams and not in the time frame of her healing, but she can potentially pass what she needs to do for the Naval Academy. And there's still potentially a path for her to go to still become an astronaut while she is going through the Naval Academy. So he like helped her apply. He is literally her rock during this. Okay, so basically, obviously Diane's going through the worst time of her life. But I think also David's really stressed out. He's caring for Diane. He's running cross country at this point. He's keeping up his academics. He's dealing with his own deteriorating home life. And it seems like at this point, too, he's not doing as well in the Civil Air Patrol as he once was doing because he's so unbelievably distracted, you know? Yeah, of course. I mean, if now you're taking care of your girlfriend full-time who is in rehab, you know, like, come on. Yeah, he's just going through a lot. And I think that this all comes to a head on November 4th, 1995, when he is traveling to a cross-country meet that's in Lubbock, which is 250 miles away. So they're traveling 
500 miles round trip for this cross-country meet. So he ends up sitting next to this very popular, very beautiful girl named Adrian Jones. And they had known each other for a little while. And apparently she had had a crush on him. Uh, but, you know, he's always been so focused on his other activities that are even outside of his high school that I don't think he had ever really flirted with with her or anything. Um, but Adrian's really special. I think if I had to cast her, it would be like a much younger, even prettier Heather Morris from Glee who plays Brittany yep. in Glee. Yep. Like she has that look, but she's, Brittany is kind of dumb in the show. And I don't want you to think that about Adrian because she's also extremely smart. She's in all honors classes. She's also in the National Honor Society. And um, she is planning on to like, she is planning to go on to Texas A&M and become a veterinarian. Like she is also the same type of focus as these two, just definitely not in the military way. Um, so, you know, they've known each other for a while and, and he's two years older than her. He's 18, she's 16. So they've had some sort of general flirtation for a long time, but now they're on this really long car ride. And I guess they like sit in the van together both ways. And there's a lot going on here where he probably is just having fun for the first time in a really long time. It's uncomplicated. She comes from a really nice family that's, you know, the parents are in a good relationship. She's uncomplicated. She's happy. She's bubbly and perky. Like everyone describes her as charismatic and popular, a star on the track team. Uh, like everyone loves her. She's actually like the very much the popular girl that everyone gets along with in the school. And she's also hardworking. Like she also works at a fried chicken fast food restaurant and all of her coworkers there love her. So basically nobody knows exactly how this went from zero to F in this short period. But reportedly at this point, he offers her a ride home. They end up in a elementary school parking lot and they end up having sex. In a school parking lot? Yeah. It's like behind an elementary school. Like he's driving her home and in his report, she's like, oh, take this turn, take this turn, take this turn. And she's not really guiding him towards her house. She's guiding him towards a, a, a empty parking lot. So yeah. And so it, it seems like that we don't really know what this event meant to Adrian. Um, whether, you know, this was her first time, whether this was a guy she'd like had a huge crush on forever. This was this weird opportunity that they had or if it didn't mean anything. She never told any of her friends about this. So we oh. don't know exactly how she felt in her side of it. Um, she seemed to quickly start dating somebody else shortly after this event. So maybe she was already talking to somebody else, so she didn't want to talk about it. She had a new boyfriend relatively soon after this okay. who went to another school. So I think that whether the and I don't even know. I mean, the experience could have been bad for her in so many ways. It has been presented as consensual, but we don't know, you know? Okay. So we have no idea how this went for Adrian, other than she never seemed to really talk about it with her friends. Okay. Adrian's friends wouldn't have believed that she would have gone together with a taken guy uh, because the year before, one of her friends was put into the hospital by a jealous 14-year-old girl with a baseball bat because she thought that friend hooked up with her boyfriend. Oh, okay. So 
she was super sensitive to the shit. She knew what the outcome of infidelity was, what it could be. So there's like a line in the movie, the made for TV movie where she's like in the car and she's like, well, you're not dating anyone, are you? And he's like, nope. <laughs> so that was all conjecture. We have no idea what, what he told her, if he revealed anything, but she probably wouldn't have known about Diane because Diane went to a different school. And everyone says that David was pretty standoffish and kept to himself enough that, that he might not have advertised that he had a fiancé. Yeah. It's a weird thing to have your senior year of high school, you know? Yeah. So by all accounts, like she, it seems like she definitely didn't know he was dating somebody, which by the way, later on what happens isn't her fault, even if she did know, you know, it's the person in the relationship's responsibility to keep it in their pants. Yeah. And be honest. And be honest. Yeah. And so it, it feels like that she didn't know at all. So after he sleeps with Adrian, he goes to Diane's house and he doesn't tell her about it. He just is like weird and emotional. And she thinks something just happened at the cross country meet, you know? And she remembers that night later on when he does confess. But like at the time, nothing happens. He's just like, can I just hold you? And then later on, the only person he does tell is his best friend, Jay, who goes to yet another school. So he doesn't go to... Uh, the same school as David and Adrian, but he also doesn't go to Diane's school, but he knows Diane through Cap. And basically David's like, oh, please let me be the one to tell Diane. Don't tell her. And he's like, I'm not gonna, not gonna tell her, dude. Don't worry about it. So like I said, Adrian never tells anyone about this dalliance. It seems on she moves fairly quickly after this with a new boyfriend named Tracy. Um, she's super close to her mom and she doesn't really tell her mom about David either. So like I was saying earlier, I have no idea what that experience was like for her. If she, like she had a great crush on this guy and then he just like never called her and she was embarrassed. So, or like I said, I don't know. It could have not been consensual, you yeah. know? Yeah. So it's so crazy whatever how much happens. more sneaking around you can get away with in high school because you have to be home and there's curfews for some people and other people could run around. Like it's it's kind of crazy. So much more promiscuity than I feel like even when you're an adult. <laughs> well, people can like sneak out. And also in the 90s, no, like not many people, unless you're really wealthy, had cell phones. And you certainly didn't have any sort of technology that can track kids. No. So <laughs> meanwhile, David can't put it behind him. He's racked with guilt. And one night he ends up having an argument with Diane because he's paying for her to take the SATs. And so he feels responsible for her doing well on them and she doesn't want to study. So they're just fighting about something that's like dumb. And while they're getting into this fight, which it seems like he's kind of lashing out at her. And you know, when somebody's like guilty of something, they project their anger like on the other person. Yeah. And so she's like, what is your problem? And he finally just breaks down and he confesses everything that happened with Adrian. And she has such an intense, oversized response to it. She goes completely hysterical. Like she, her world is ending. It's like this insane situation where you can imagine mentally that she's thinking about her family. Yeah, come she's on. thinking about her dad's infidelity. And now this guy that she gave her virginity to is doing this to her. She has l losing her dreams to go to the Air Force Academy. Her hand is still not healed. She's still in a cast. And the one good thing, the one good partner in her life is just like, yeah, I just threw it all away for the 16-year-old girl. Like she ends up going so 
bananas that she is now smashing her head as hard as she can against the floor and the walls. And she later says that she was trying to commit suicide by fracturing her skull. What? Yeah, which is the most insane way I've heard of... Trying. Trying to kill herself. So... At this point, he's trying to get her to stop hurting herself. So he's begging and he's crying. He's trying to get her physically to stop. And he's like, whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I love you. And she's like, she just starts screaming, kill her, kill her, kill her over and over again. And he's finally like, okay, I'll do it. And this is from uh, his later confession Whoa. So he says, the stunned Graham tried, this is from uh, Peter Meyer's book. The stunned Graham tried to calm his fiance, but nothing seemed to work until he said yes to killing her. And this is literally from David's later confession. The request of Adrian's life was not for a second taken lightly by me. I couldn't even believe she would ask that of me. The only thing that could satisfy her womanly vengeance, which this is an 18-year-old kid writing this, which is insane was the life of the one that had, for an instant, taken her place. Uh, Peter Meyer says that David wrote this in stilted, emotionless prose as if it made perfect sense. And then this is going back to David. Diane's beautiful eyes have always played the strings of my heart effortlessly. I couldn't imagine life without her. Not for a second did I want to lose her. I didn't have any harsh feelings for Adrian, but no one could stand between me and Diane. I was totally in love with her and always will be. Then maybe you shouldn't have had sex with the other girl. <laughs> yeah, good point. Come like, on, dude, like, why didn't you think of this? How could you let things go that bad where you were willing to have sex with somebody else, but yet... Y- now you you're going to kill to make up for it on top of the fact that that like it's i mean that's just crazy yeah so basically he tells her at that moment like i'm gonna do it i'm gonna kill her diane is getting like increasingly anxious like like it ends up i think sometime between the november 4th thing i don't think he confesses to her for like three weeks so we're talking the end of november now so we're getting into the holidays too which we're getting with family drama exactly so we are probably after thanksgiving but before christmas at this point basically like diane can't stop thinking about this she just keeps picture them having sex she's obsessing about it and she thinks that the only way to eradicate these feelings is erasing Adrian. David takes her murderous He's a human. Yeah, it's not like killing the person erases what your partner did. There's no forethought in this. There's no sense. And this is, I think, what happens when you're dealing with teenagers and passion. Did anything happen to her brain from that accident? Like, is there any sort of medical feedback on whether she had any sort of head trauma or because I feel like this is such a dramatic request from someone who was so ambitious and focused. And obviously I know like the vulnerability that is accompanied by losing your virginity to someone and thinking that someone's going to marry you and then they fuck you over the same way that your dad's, you know, screwing over your mom. Like I get that, but to request to kill that person is a little. So there's, 
there's no um, head trauma or even mental illness diagnosis with her, but a psychiatrist later talks about how if you are in a codependent relationship and there's the threat of losing your partner, there can be an insanely violent reaction to the loss of that person and whoever or whatever you perceive as the threat that stands in the way of that closeness and that love and that trust needs to be eradicated. That totally makes sense because the codependency becomes like part of you. So you're feeling like you just need to regain control over that. And if they're both, you know, trying to maintain control of the relationship and that's, you know, eradicating that person is going to do it. That's... Yeah. I mean, I think it doesn't make sense. And as she later says that none of this was actually premeditated, even though it was because they talked about it for days. But in her mind, it was so wrought with passion. And I do feel like this was absolutely premeditated because I'll explain the crime in a little bit. At the same time, I I can't think of any other group on earth other than like children and teenagers who can keep up the heightened emotions as long as, as you know, as long as to literally plan a crime a week earlier and then still have it be high emotion. At some point as an adult, you're going to fizzle out just even from running all of that adrenaline. You're going to be like, oh man, I'm coming down off this. Yeah. And it was just, it never went away for her. There was just so much anger and rage. And like, even later on, when people are talking about this murder, which I'm going to describe for you, because I think I've made it pretty clear that they're going to kill her at this point. Um, Is that what they're going to do? Like, she, I'm so sorry, Adrian. You didn't deserve it. Um, Definitely not. But no. And like without anything. She didn't deserve anything. This poor girl. She, we don't even, like I said, there's no, there's no evidence that their relationship wasn't consensual. And later on she chooses to get in a car with him. So ho- hopefully it was, but like, we don't know the ins and outs of whatever happened between them. We really don't. And this poor girl has no voice in this, you know, yeah. <sighs> basically like David hears what Diane is saying as an ultimatum, like that he has to do this or she's going to leave him or she's going to kill herself. She's being extremely heightened about the entire situation and he doesn't see a way out of it. Like he wants to be with her no matter what. And he thinks this is the only answer. And so they, they start like plotting what they're going to do. And she's making him call Adrian's house to try to like lure Adrian out of the house all weekend. But Adrian's super social, very busy. She's never home. And David finally reaches her on the phone on Sunday night, December 3rd, 1995 at 1030 PM at night. They're going to kill this girl right before the holidays, huh? I know. It's brutal, huh? This is devastating. Also, she has a really lovely family too. Like even if she had a troubled family, it doesn't matter. It's just like, it's just devastating, you know? Basically, they make plans to pick her up later. Her mother knew she was on the phone with her boyfriend, Tracy, and she had like stepped into the room to be like, hey can you get off the phone it's super late? And she was she was like, oh, I'm talking to David from the cross-country team. He's going through something. He's a little depressed. I'm trying to like help him. And so her mom's like, okay, but wrap it up basically. So she knows that she was originally talking to her boyfriend, Tracy, but it seems like this guy, David, beeped in. So Tracy had been talking to her And the mom had been letting them talk a little later than usual because Tracy went to a different school and they don't get to see each other very often. Um, But then David beeped in. And when he beeped in, she told 
Tracy that she was talking to a guy named Brian, who also, she said, was going through a tough time and he really needed a friend to talk to. She didn't tell her boyfriend, Tracy, that it was David. She said it was this random guy, Brian, who Tracy didn't know who Brian was. And did her mom hear that? Um, no, her mom okay. thinks she's talking to David. So she, she, her mom has no idea. But later when they ask Tracy and her mom, they get conflicting reports of who exactly beeped in on this yeah. call. Okay. So David tells her that he's going to be there at 1230, but they actually run a little bit late. So they end up at 1230, end up at David's house where he's basically getting a bag of weapons. They drive Diane's parents' Mazda hatchback to David's house where they go to David's bedroom and he picks up some weapons, which I personally think that even if you're trained, that teenagers should not have unfettered access to I was going to gonna say, what do they have? <laughs> well, he he had sold some hunting rifles to like buy things for Diane. So obviously he has hunting rifles. He also has like military weapons and stuff like that for his training. His parents, I mean, this is also Texas, you have to understand. And this is Texas in the 90s. I'm sure most kids in Texas in the 90s were raised with some firearms awareness, but I wasn't aware that basically you could just grab any of them willy-nilly in any home, you know? Uh, yeah. So they don't originally have any plan for David to have to use a gun. The plan is for David to drive her to this nearby lake. It's called Joe Pool Lake. Break her neck and then have them both weigh her down with barbells to sink her to the bottom of the lake. He packs rope, barbells, and a 9 millimeter Russian-made Makarov pistol. You can't be normal with these thoughts going through your head thinking that this is no okay. And I don't know how much of it is TV or like movies where you think it's like easy to break somebody's neck, if it's just the hormones, if it's just their family situations, if it's some sort of military training where you're being trained to kill, you know, but he is deeply compartmentalizing at this point. And so they get this nine millimeter pistol as well. And they put it into this duffel bag and they go off to pick Adrian up. Diane hides in the back of the hatchback. So like, you know how a hatchback trunk is not really like a trunk. So she's in the, the backest part of the, the hatchback, which is like the trunk, but it's not really. I feel like this is so on, obviously both of them are at fault, but like the fact that David had sex with this girl and is now going to kill her with his current girlfriend, like oh, he's not sure. at fault at all. Like she should have been banging his head against the wall. Yeah. I mean, this is obviously extremely emotionally distressing. And later on, you'll see like different people who feel like different sides of this. Like, oh, David would have never done that if she didn't make him. It's like, well, she made him because he did this thing to her. Like none of this is fair and none of this makes sense. There's no right and wrong about this. And there's not one person that's at fault. They're still both deciding to go for it and kill an innocent girl. Yeah. A child. She's 16 years old and she's by all accounts just lovely and wonderful. And honestly, even if she was vile and had terrible grades and was ugly, she also doesn't deserve to die. FYI. So David puts Diane in the back, so she's hiding. And then he drives to Adrian's house. It's around 1 a.m. at this point. And Adrian gets into the front seat. And this is what I can't imagine. In both Diane's and David's accounts, they never talk about what those 20 minutes from Adrian's house to the lake sounded like or what they were doing. And I'm 
I can't imagine what these three human beings are feeling. If they're just thinking about how they're about to kill this girl, there's no, I mean, I feel like your natural human mind would like not even be able to process information and remember it the right way. How sociopathic though is David for like having a normal conversation with her for 20 minutes, like psychotic, driving her to a lake and being like, it sounds like later on she thought that they were like going to the lake to like hook up or something. So like, what was he telling her? How was he acting? How, you know, did she get some weird prickle on the back of her neck? Did she have a gut intuition that she fought because teenagers don't listen to their intuition? Like what, what was she feeling? Was she just so excited that this guy was still her crush and she was getting to hang out with him? Oh my God, that's devastating. Isn't that devastating? She was just a teenage girl who liked a boy. She did absolutely nothing wrong. She deserved none of this. And they entrapped her. They trapped her. They lured her into the car and they took her to her death. So they arrive at the lake and David pulls over to this like side of this road that's kind of like off the lake on some like farmland. And apparently Adrian was cool. Ugh, he's the worst. Actually, both of these people are the worst. Everyone's the worst except for Adrian. And so he like, so Adrian's like leaning her seat back a little bit because it seems like they're going to like kiss. And apparently David like leans forward, like pretending he's going to kiss her too while motioning for Diane to get out of the hatch. And so when Diane sees them in this position, even if David's faking it, she it like enrages her. She like sees red, of course, because this is exactly what she's always imagined. And now it's like right in front of her. And so she like crawls into the back seat and is like screaming at both of them. And of course, Adrian is like panicking when she sees Diane and David's trying to say, it's okay. We only want to talk to you. Diane just wanted to talk to you. And Diane starts confronting her and being like, did you enjoy fucking my boyfriend, you whore? And is like saying all these inflammatory, terrible things. And Adrian's, of course, just like trying to get away and saying like, no, no, I didn't enjoy it. Like, we're, like I don't even know what you're talking about. And like, then Diane starts screaming at David. Like, she's still so angry with him for doing this. And she's hysterical. And then she finally starts yelling, do it, just do it, just do it. Like, Like, he has to break her neck at this point. So David like starts like attacking Adrian, like trying to break her neck. He says later in his confession, like, I didn't realize how hard it was to break somebody's neck. It's not like Hollywood where they just like snap it. It's like no shit, Sherlock. What do you think you are? What a dumbass. Chuck Norris. Yeah. What, What do you think this was like? Really, really hard to kill somebody with your hands. Don't try it. Don't try it for moral reasons, but also don't do it because you probably will fail. You're going to look like an asshole. It's going to be terrible. You're going to hate it. So don't kill. Just don't kill people. At this point, he's like wrestling her and trying to like like choke her kind of. And at, and she's like a little bit fighting back. Like she's really, really going for it. She's trying to defend herself. I mean, her animal instincts are kicking in. And Diane gets nervous for her fiance. So she goes into the duffel bag and grabs the barbell and starts whacking Adrian in the head with the barbell as hard as she possibly can. Fuck. So she does this repeatedly, like fracturing like her skull. Yeah. Psychopath just going bananas. And 
for some reason, David like turns away or something for a second and Adrian manages to squeeze through the window, the passenger side window and like fall out of the car and she starts running as fast as she can, but she has a major, major head wound and injuries and so she collapses. And so at that point, David's like, I want to leave. I, I think she's dead. Like we have to go. And Diane's like, no, get your ass out of that car and you go check to see whether she's dead and bring your gun. And he's, and he's like, no, I think she's dead. Like, we just need to leave. We need to leave. Oh and she's like, God. get out of that car and go kill her. And so he takes his gun, his nine millimeter, and he goes down to where she is and he shoots her twice in the head. It's so sad. And they don't even like try to do anything with her body. They're both so fucked up and they're so like insane about this moment. Like they can't even like look at each other and he gets back in the car and he just drives away and leaves her body there. And the first thing he says when he gets back in the car is, I love you. And she says, we shouldn't have done that, David. And I guess he turned to her and said, well, nice time to tell me now. Oh my God. I know it's devastating. You are so right. It's such that teenage rage. So how old were they when they ended up going to court? So they're 17 and 18 now. By the time they get caught, I think they're 18 and 19. So we're going to get to that. Okay. Okay. So Classic, afterwards- and you jump in the gun. Uh, you love it. You love guessing what's next. Oh, so basically David's best friend Jay's house is close to where they left Adrian in Burleson, Texas. Oh God. They don't so wrap he, someone else up into this, do they? Well, he he has no idea. So they go to this- kid's house and he's only 16 but he has looked up to David his whole life and this is like his best friend it's one of his greatest friends and this is kind of a teen hangout he has like a first story window and like his parents kind of know that sometimes kids like come by at night and like a hangout sometimes for kids so when they end up there like at 2 30 in the morning he's not surprised to see them and when David is like hey is it okay if we crash here and like you can't tell anyone we're here? He's like, um, okay. But he thinks it's because David's been having this unraveling. Only two weeks before this night, he had been relieved of his Civil Air Patrol command by adult officers. His SPATS award is in jeopardy. He's been like totally screwing off. He hasn't been showing up for things. He thinks that David and Diane have been like drinking and they're potentially going to get caught by the police or something or that they were doing something bad that their parents wouldn't want them to know about. That's his assumption. So when he's like, hey, can we crash here for a little bit? And also you didn't see us. He's not really thinking that they did anything sinister. He's thinking that they got up to some stupid teenage stuff. Yeah. So at this point, it doesn't even, I mean, if you are like a actual kid that's not murdering people, I feel like your scope for what's bad is so, you know, adolescent, it's drinking or getting in trouble with your authority. Oh, absolutely. Or, yeah. It's not that you just brutally I've murdered even, an innocent girl at the lake. <laughs> yeah. I've even heard of people who see people who are like covered in blood and their brain organizes things in a way to make sense to reality. So they think like, oh, that person must have been in a mud puddle or something. They were an accident. And like The way we organize thoughts is in a way that helps us make sense of the world 
in the way that we know the world, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So that night, David's like, um, we got something on us. We have to like wash up in your bathroom if that's cool. He's like, fine. He's like, can I borrow a a t-shirt and shorts? The guy's like, whatever, cool. I think there's a couple factors to this. One, I don't think teenage boys are the most inquisitive of people. And I also think that he's still technically like this kid's commanding officer. This kid's a couple years younger than him. He's also in the Civil Air Patrol. David has previously been kind of like the king of the Civil Air Patrol. So he's not questioning him. Yeah, that rank again. There's that fucking rank. And so basically he has no idea, but they're like washing Adrian's blood off of themselves, particularly David. He changes into his clothes and then they try to lay down on Jay's floor But uh, Diane is crying and she's saying, it hurts, David, it hurts. And Jay thinks that she's talking about her hand because she still has a cast on her left hand. Um, He doesn't know what's going on other than it seems like there's some sort of issue that they're having and they don't end up staying the night. They end up leaving like in the early dawn. So the next morning, poor Adrian's mother is awoken by her daughter's alarm clock. I can't even. And I know. And she's like, at first she thinks, okay, did she go for a run? But her running shoes are there. She's like, maybe she went early to the school. She calls the school. She's not there. She even calls the the fried chicken restaurant that she works at, like randomly to be like, did she randomly go over there before school or something? And she's not anywhere. So she starts panicking and she files a missing person report. And not too much later than that, uh, Adrian's body is discovered by a farmer um, on his land. Yeah. So it's just so devastating. Like so senseless. That's what this is. Exactly. Senseless. Which is like the most frustrating of all crimes. Oof. And it was, it was, it was just devastating. So basically the cops don't have any immediate leads. Here's some of the rumors and the things that they're thinking and they entertain before they really start investigating. Um, One is that at this point, there's a lot of gangs that are spreading out from Dallas, Fort Worth into the suburbs for drug related things. Yeah, this is getting to be kind of a dicey area. And I actually have a really fun murder story to tell you right at the end. Like, I mean, as fun as murder can be, this is a terrible story. Um, But there's like apparently like a ton of crime and murder going on in this area at the time. And so they're like, okay, is it potentially drug related? But there's no evidence that Adrian, who's this honors student who runs on the cross country team and is such a good girl would have any tie-in with drugs whatsoever but like what else are the cops to go on you know what I mean like yeah it's just so hard I mean this is a girl that's beloved by everyone and so the second thing they think of is the girl I was telling you about Trisha so this is the girl that put Adrian's friend Kristen in the hospital apparently she broke Kristen's nose fractured her cheekbone gave her a concussion and a wound in the back of her head that required 45 stitches to close by attacking her with a baseball bat. Did that girl go to juvie? 
Uh, I think so, yes. And this is why they think that it, it might have had something to do with Adrian is because Adrian testified against her in the assault trial. So they follow up, but there's no connection. There was no way that it was possibly this girl. Um, so they're also like investigating. Her mother said she loved to jog. And sometimes when she couldn't sleep, she'd go jogging like late at night or early in the morning. So they're like, maybe she was picked up and murdered by a stranger while jogging, but there's no sign of any sort of sexual assault that would speak to a motive for those types of crime. There's just no evidence, so they can't say for sure that that's what could have been the motivation. And then four, of course, they look at the dad because they always look at, you know, the dad or the husband or somebody who's in the family. And he immediately volunteered to do a polygraph and passed it with flying colors. So like he's ruled out. The cops thought like, okay, if this is teen related, teens can't shut their mouth up. They're going to talk to somebody. It's going to get out. And the interesting thing in this situation is that all of the teenagers involved in the crime went to different schools. So there wasn't actually a rumor mill. Like nobody knew that David hooked up with Adrian. And the only people who did know were Diane, who went to a different school, and Jay, who went to a different school. And Jay did not know Adrian's name. He said he hooked up with some girl from the cross country team. Jay also didn't connect like the night they came over with the night she was murdered because it wasn't his town and it wasn't his high school. So nobody in this could connect anything to anyone. So it was really interesting. Like the cops were like, definitely if it's teenagers, we'll find out about it, but not when they all go to different schools and nobody's talking. Yeah. So they start following up with leads which are like, who are the latest people that talk to Adrian? So that's her mother and her boyfriend, Tracy, who obviously they looked at Tracy too. Um, but he was Poor clear. guy. Ugh, I know. Oh, you lose your girlfriend. And then, I mean, the same for the father. You lose your girlfriend, your daughter, and the cops are like, sorry. So, you know, her mother's like, I'm going to contact the cross-country coach because she said she was talking to a guy named David and the cross-country coach gives her David Graham's name. And so she gives it to the police. So the police do call David and they say, hey, you know, we they like look him up first to see if he's potentially a suspect. And they see this guy who's basically Captain America and he looks perfect. And they're like, hey, we just have to do this as a formality. Like, did you talk to Adrian Jones the night she died? Basically, he says that he doesn't know Adrian that well. He wasn't talking to her and that he was with his fiance all night, which he was. He just doesn't mention he was killing Adrian with her. They don't check. Like, this is what kills me. So it's 1995. So I feel like at this point, you could check phone records to see who she was talking to. But at that time, if somebody beeped in, could you not check that number? No, I think it was still an incoming call because the, you had to switch the phone line over and then it would start the minutes with that number. So I think it would still show up. Because it would be extremely incriminating if they could look at his phone records or her phone records and be like, no, he actually called her and he's denying they ever talked at all. Like he didn't even say, oh, I just called to chat with her or anything. He said he denied the entire Yeah, and they may not, because he said that, they may not have... I mean, he's a white male who's in the military. It's it's so insane to me. So the next thing that they do is that they follow up on what Tracy, the boyfriend, says, which is she was talking to a Brian. So they go through Adrian's address book and they find a name for a Brian McMillan. And then they interview her friends about like, hey, do you know this guy, Brian? Did she have any issues with him? And all of her friends are like, oh my God, Brian is this like 
high school dropout guy who's like so obsessed with her and he comes by the chicken fried restaurant place all the time. And sometimes she's like, oh my God, ew, Brian's stalking me. And she like ducks down in the window so he can't see her. Such a high school thing. And so, yeah. So they're like, okay, let's look into this. Also, Adrian's younger brother said that he saw pickup leave their house or drive by their house around the time she might have left. And Brian has a pickup truck. So they're like putting things together. And when you're looking at what David looks like, you know, like I said, Captain America. And when you're looking at Brian, who had to drop out of school because he has severe anxiety and bipolar disorder, and he has problems, like he had to drop out of high school because he had problems being around crowds. It made him super anxious. Like they're looking at somebody who has a lot of mental illness and they immediately jump on like, this is the guy. This is our our kid. Such a scapegoat. And it doesn't, such a scapegoat. And it doesn't even make sense to me because like what they're saying is, Adrian would lie to her mother about who she was talking to, but she wouldn't lie to her boyfriend. But if she was talking about a boy she liked, she would never tell her boyfriend that she was talking to a guy she liked. So it makes matters worse when his parents declined doing a polygraph. And they they declined for a very good reason. The reason they declined. Brian's parents, yeah. Because they're worried about like – all of his anxiety and his issues could like create a false positive. Like he could be telling the truth, but he's like nervous. They're concerned about their son. So they, these, this like wrongfully stokes the police suspicion. And when they finally do bring him in for an interview, he is super vague. He can't remember if he spoke to Adrian. Apparently like he had gotten drunk for the first time in several months that night. And he's on four different types of like depression medication, which obviously interacts very poorly with alcohol. So he was like, I guess maybe I talked to her. And like, you know, the way they do interrogations, they make you, you know, double guess yourself. And well, you did talk to her. We know you talked to her. And he's like, I guess I could have, I was drunk. And they're like, and then you drove over there and you picked her up. And he's like, I really don't think I did. They're basically like coming at him hard and he doesn't have a very good answer for it. And then even later, why they think he might've done it is that they're asking him like, Hey, how do you think she was killed? And it had never been revealed that she had had like this blunt force trauma. And he was like, I don't know, maybe a hammer or something. And so they use that. They're like, oh, oh no, no, we never released to the media that it was a hammer. And he says later, like, no, a, a police officer told me she was attacked with a hammer. And I was just reiterating it later when they were like, what do you think happened to her? He's like, I don't know, maybe a hammer. So basically they railroad him. They're just trying to get the case off the books. They think they have a good candidate for it. And... But it's At not this about point, it's about actually solving the crime. Definitely. I feel like they're just trying to cross this off the line and they're trying to like figure out and solve it, but they're not really solving it. And so they go to a judge and they say that they think that this kid is a flight risk, like that his parents are going to take him out of the jurisdiction and they're like, he's definitely it. And God. later on, they're basically like, Locking we think in. he definitely did it. At midnight, they get this judge to sign this warrant so they can arrest him. And this is where it gets crazy. They get a SWAT team to break down this kid's door with a 
battering ram when his entire family is home. They the front go door in of the house. The front door of the house, they use a battering ram. They go in with like the SWAT team with all of their guns cocked and they go, they know they lay out of the house because they'd been over there to interview him already. You mean interrogate they him. They go right into the bedrooms. Yeah, interrogate him. And so they go into the bedrooms and they put both him and his father, pull them out of bed, put them down on the ground and handcuff him, his father too. And they like literally point a muzzle of a gun next to the mother's face who's like in her nightgown in bed. Oh my God. And this kid was apparently really sick at the time. He had bronchitis and the flu, not to mention his other issues. And he's like, guys, I'm really sick. I'm really sick. And he was like wearing boxers and they like don't let him put a coat on. They don't let him put clothes on. They like haul him. It's unbelievable. So they haul him away. And because he has well-documented mental issues, they throw him in this like padded cell situation where there's no bed or toilet or anywhere to sit and there's only a hole in the ground where you can go to the bathroom. How old is he? And he's 18 or 19. Oh my God. Like he's still a baby. I think he's 18. I think he's only 18. And they like there's apparently like snot and piss and vomit and blood like all over this place. Doesn't look like they cleaned it. Before he and he said before they put him in there, it's like disgusting. He says that he had to stay there for three days. And they were like denying him his medication. They were denying him food. Is this they legal? were giving him like I mean, this is the 90s Texas. I I mean, I don't know. So, so like it's God. he's going through this terrible situation. They're giving him like one Dixie cup of water a day and then he has like a social worker come in or a woman who's posing as a social worker who's like, "Well, if you just tell us what happened, we'll make sure you get a bed and you get some food." And he's like, "I didn't kill anyone, I swear." And so they finally after a couple of days move him to a regular jail. But they hold him for three weeks while they do forensics and they search his car. They search his entire house. They like look up and down and they basically just assumed that the forensics would tell them what they wanted to hear, but they don't. They find nothing. And this poor kid misses Christmas and New Year's with his family. He's in jail for three weeks it's it's just like his meds aren't given to him on time or with enough water. And even when his mom calls to make sure that they're giving him all of his meds, they're like, actually, we think some of your son's like anxiety medication is too high. So we're giving him less. Oh, like they were just God. fucking with his doses and, and shit like that. Dosages. Whoa. So they finally like go over all the evidence. They're like, we can't legally hold him anymore. He didn't do this. He also crazy as the murder. I know, isn't it devastating? So, so basically, he he does do a polygraph finally, and he passes with flying colors. Like his responses are over the wall, honest. So they should have done that from the beginning. Like, of course, it wasn't his parents' fault. I but was his parents say, said earlier on they were probably just no, working. but his parents. His parents said that they had finally – they were getting harassed by the police, so they had agreed to do a polygraph. And so they had already agreed to do a polygraph when the SWAT team broke in. Oh, my God. Yeah. So meanwhile, our Romeo and Margaret over here are just publicly enjoying their life. Like, think about this. I think this is 
it's not as bad as killing somebody, but letting this poor, innocent guy go through this. And they knew it because you're he was in a paper. You're ruining someone else's life. You're, you've ruined, you're ruining her life, her entire family, and now his life and his entire family. Think of the anxiety every day as a mom waking up and like having to check on your kid who is mentally challenged in jail. It's, it's uh, honestly like these kids were supposed to have integrity. There's no integrity. There's no, there's nothing in, in letting somebody take the blame for your crime. You know, it's just disgusting to me that they were just going on and living their life. It's like they committed murder twice. I mean, also this kid's face was all over the news. It was in newspapers. They're saying, we got the killer. This is the guy. He's been arrested for it. He was obsessed with her. He was such a creep. So like the defamation, like the the ruining of this entire family's reputation. I mean, it's just crazy to me that they were just, and, and these kids knew it. I mean, this was all over the media. So they knew somebody was in custody for this. And they're just like living their life. They're planning their wedding. Their year. Planning their wedding, attending the junior ROTC ball, which will put their picture at the ball up on the Instagram. Oh, my God. They're receiving accolades and scholarships. Like, privately, apparently, they were becoming even crazier around each other. They were getting angry and aggressive, but also more codependent. Diane later tells her roommates um, that they were physically fighting each other, that David had once put a belt around her neck and tried to choke her, that she had also once tried to choke him to death and he had claw marks on his neck to prove it. She showed them a scar on her knee and said it was from a knife fight they had during this time. And so publicly they're like being the perfect couple, but according to Diane, at least, behind the scenes, they are just gladiator style raging at each other. They have so much guilt and anger and regret, and it seems to be like bubbling over between them. But at the same time, publicly, they are getting all of these awards and scholarships. David gets into the Air Force Academy, full scholarship. Diane receives a full scholarship to the Naval Academy. They are featured in local newspapers and accept awards. Um, the Fort Worth Star-Telegram even runs a story titled Couple to March to Military Drums, Then Wedding Bells. And it's all about this military couple who's going to get married to each other when they graduate. Wow. So David leaves for the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs on June 30th of 1996, and Diane leaves for Annapolis on July 2nd. So both academies start with a weeks-long boot camp type program designed to weed out weaker cadets. David flourishes while Diane kind of suffers. And she wasn't as accustomed or dedicated to military life. Plus, she still has those physical issues that plagued her after the car accident. So, Which I don't I also feel bad about that, anymore. No. I also think like David's better at compartmentalizing. I feel like he's very much pushing everything they did out of his mind while she's being a little bit more consumed by it. Which I think men can do better than women in general. Yes. And I also think that, um, you know, they have been having this codependent relationship for over a year at this point. And they're completely ripped out of each other's life. And I think in most of these situations, mostly the woman suffers also, you know? Yeah. And I think like it's totally normal for like your one-year anniversary to kill someone, right? 
<laughs> oh, is that the one year anniversary? It's it's the blood, the blood of a woman who's wronged you. Year one. Year two is like wood or metal or something. Year one is murder. <laughs> Cold blooded murder. Oh man. We totally missed that memo. <laughs> now we can't. After you after you go by your one year anniversary, you definitely can't murder again. It's not fair. No. So she ends up befriending um, her squad leader, Jay Guild, and she's like basically incessantly talking about David. She's obsessed with the letters she receives. She's obsessed with talking about their relationship. She is refusing to participate in the community outreach program. There's like a – at Annapolis, apparently there's a a program where local families like – adopt uh, a student, a cadet there to help them get used to the academy. And she like refuses to meet her family. She's and like, for the she's not, you don't want that. Yeah. For that. Good for those for families. families. Yeah. You dodged a bullet. Welcome this murderer into your home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a turkey dinner. Oh my God. So yeah, she, she also like, they had to write a, a scholarship essay about themselves and all of their accomplishments. And she only wrote about David and their engagement, which the officials thought was very weird. Like you are at Annapolis. It is the Naval Academy. It's very prestigious. Why are you writing about your engagement to your weird high school boyfriend? A diary entry. Yeah. The, everyone felt very uncomfortable about that. Academy officials say that she has all the potential to be a model midshipman, but she was barely doing the bare minimum. She was barely meeting the bare minimum. I keep saying barely and bare. (laughs) She was meeting the bare minimum. How can you get through a day when you have the weight of killing an innocent person on your conscience? Oh, You know what I mean? Like, how can you actually get through the day? Yeah. Oh, my God. It's like the telltale heart. It's under the floorboards. It's like, you did it. You did it. You did it. So also at this time, David's letters are getting fewer and farther in between. And she is like raging and confiding in this guy, Jay. And eventually she tells Jay, like, kind of screw my boyfriend. He's not paying attention to me anymore. Like, maybe you want to be my boyfriend. And Jay has a crush on her, so he's like, sure. But at this point, it seems like maybe she's doing this to incite David's jealousy, to get a little revenge, to garner response from him. Because she does write to David and says, oh, by the way, this guy Jay kissed me. How do you feel about that? So messed up. She's such an instigator, huh? It's so messed up. Yep. And so David's, of course, pissed. And he even attempts to reach out to naval officers to investigate Jay for sexual harassment because she's telling a one-sided story about this. And during this point, he writes to Diane a letter begging her to remain faithful and reminding her of what binds them together. That's what he says. Remember what binds us together. Good old murder. Good old murder. Nothing like the couple that kills together stays together. In jail. So, yeah, Diane is spinning out of control. So she finally confides in Jay, this new potentially boyfriend guy, that they killed Adrian. She tells him. What? So he, yeah, she like is like, oh, by the way, do you know what happened to this girl that he cheated on with? We killed her. I mean, he killed her, but he killed her for me. And now he's not even writing me back. That really has to be a buzzkill. Yeah, it's kind of a boner killer. I thought we were going to get it on. And now- you keep talking about your ex, but then also murder? 
<laughs> and that you murdered someone with him. And I just don't know. I don't know how my dick feels about that. I don't really know what I can bring into the bedroom for you if that's your thing. Because I'm just not into murder. I don't think our kinks are lining up here. <laughs> So, oh my God. so he doesn't turn her in though. And I think it's, it, it, he didn't know if he believed her A. So I think they had some sort of romantic entanglement. So he didn't want to believe her. I also think that he was her squad captain. So maybe he would have gotten in trouble for having a relationship with her. So what really gets her caught though, is that one night she's staying up all night and chatting with her roommates. And she tells these girls that she killed Adrian or like he killed Adrian, but he did it for her. So she's just telling everyone. I mean, this is, this is late August. She's been there for less than two months and she's already told like four people that they did this. The young women at first just don't believe her. And then they're like, wait, she's telling it in this really weird way that seems real. And she has a complete lack of regret about it. Talk like, about like, like your freshman year roommate. <laughs> yeah, we all thought we had a bad freshman year roommate. Nobody had it worse than these girls. Nobody. Nobody. So yeah, so she has no regrets. She's like, everyone knew this girl was a tramp and I would do it again if I had to. No remorse whatsoever. Oh. The other girl said that she acted like it was a rite of passage, like it was something that just needed to be done and she doesn't regret it at all. Thank goodness for those girls being brave and coming forward. Yeah. So the next day they all talked. They confide what Diane has told them to an academy chaplain who tells the school attorney who speaks to Diane. So they immediately move the girls out of her room, which is good. They move like Diane to a single room. And the school attorney speaks to her and she claims to have just made something up. She was telling Texas tales. She wanted to look tough. So she thought it would be a fun story to tell them. So she's like trying to get away with it. But the attorney is just not convinced by her. So he starts contacting Fort Worth law enforcement agencies, trying to get connected to somebody that has a missing dead teenage girl or like they Whoa. found a teenage girl's body. And he has to like call a bunch of places because obviously she didn't live in the town where this girl was found and she didn't go to high school with her. So there was no real connection. Texas is a so, big state. Yeah. So through a fluke, apparently Diane had had a temporary address in Mansfield at one point, which is where Adrian went to high school and they link up there and they find out about Adrian. And so at this point, he gets connected with the Mansfield Police Department and they're like super psyched. The detectives are like, effing, finally, we have a break in this case. So they go to their lieutenant to be like, hey, we have to fly out to Annapolis to interview this suspect because I think we're finally getting a break in this case. And this lieutenant guy says, nope. We have no money in the budget for it. You guys aren't going anywhere. And then he says, oh, by the way, if you solve this on somebody else other than Brian McMillan, you're going to have to give him a blank check. Basically saying that right. as soon as they find the person who actually did this, that family is going to sue their asses They're just off. keeping them in and jail just to cover their asses. So they basically, as long as they don't solve it, they're still – a theory out there that he could have done it so they can't sue. The moment that they actually collar somebody for this, they can be like, this was false imprisonment. You knew I didn't do this. I didn't do it. And now I'm going to sue your ass. So the lieutenant is like basically saying, I don't want you to solve this. So anyway, the detectives are like, okay, 
F this. We are going to solve this case. Like, we hope you won't stand in our way. We are willing to pay for our own plane tickets to go to Annapolis to solve this effing case. Plane tickets. Like, that plane ticket. Life is ruined. Yeah, exactly. So the detectives get permission to leave town because they have to. And so thankfully, the lieutenant lets them leave town. And they all pay for their own tickets to go to Annapolis. And they end up interviewing Jay. They interview the roommates. And they get the same exact story. Like everything she told to Jay was the exact same way she told it to her roommates. All their stories line up. And that when they try to interview Diane, she keeps saying, oh, no, I was just making it up. I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't even know Adrian. I, do, I like I have no idea what you're saying. And she's like, I, I just wanted them to think I'm tough or maybe get sympathy. So she's lying. They they don't know how to hold her. But the school officials at that point, the, the Naval Academy is like, you need to take a leave and you need to go back to your home in Texas until this case is resolved. Yeah. And so they're like, okay, let's watch what she does. So they send her back home and she has a flight that's connecting through Atlanta to go back to Texas. And when she gets to Atlanta, instead of continuing on to Texas, she changes her ticket and goes to Colorado Springs to see David. So the detectives are like, this is awesome. That's what a guilty person does. She doesn't want to talk to David on the phone about this, so she's going to talk to him in person. So this is the best thing that could possibly happen to us because this looks guilty as fuck. So she goes to Colorado Springs and she spends two days with David. We don't know exactly what they talk about. There's apparently a picture of the two of them from this time where she's still wearing her navy whites and he's wearing his blue Air Force Academy um, uniform. And meanwhile, the cops have now interviewed Jay Green and he's David's best friend about that late night visit. And he's like, oh crap. He tells them everything. He's like, I had no idea what that was about, but that's the same night. I didn't even think about it. And he tells them like they showed up and they were like, can't tell anyone we're here. They did something in the bathroom. He let them, you know, take his shirt and shorts. He tells them the whole story. And he didn't do anything wrong. After he didn't know. He he had no idea. No. He just let his best friend and, you know, his girlfriend in. And so while this is going on, Diane finally goes back to Texas and she stays with her grandparents during this time. And they, as soon as Diane leaves, the uh, detectives come into David and they start interrogating In him. Colorado and Springs. He, um, in Colorado Springs at the Air Force Academy. And he fails a polygraph. So they're like, So did they enforce the polygraph right away? Um, No, they were basically like, hey, we think you did this. We believe you did it. If you want to prove us wrong, take a polygraph. And he was like, like, okay. I think he thought he was smart enough that he could trick it. He fails it. They're like, dude, you failed this really bad. Do you want to tell us the story? And he's like, nope, there's no story to tell. And then apparently like some Air Force Academy officials, like people who had been training him, went in and really like laid it on thick. They were like, you need to tell the truth. If you want to be like a good, decent man, if you want to be the type of man that we like let into the Air Force Academy, you need to own up to whatever you did. And so at that point, he he tells a full confession. He literally is like, okay, can I have some paper and sit down and I'm going to tell you everything. And he writes out this crazy confession, which is what I told you a little bit about earlier. And let me see. I'm like looking up the part of the book too that was just so nuts. So the book has mm. the full confession in it? Yeah, the book has the full confession in it. 
So he talks about first how he gave Adrian a ride home and they shouldn't have done it, but they had sex, that he felt terrible about it. He said, it was short-lived and hardly appreciated. I did willingly concede to the girl in these actions, but I knew they were wrong. So he's totally passing the blame to Adrian, which is so fucked up. Um, Never before had I participated in anything so meaningless and painful, painful that is, because I was letting down the one person I had sworn to be faithful to. These actions were immediately regretted. And then later he says about Diane, like essentially the month that followed was one of guilt and shame. I was always being told by Diane that our relationship was so perfect and pure. The love we share would never be broken and no one would ever come between us. No one that is, except for that one girl that had stolen from us our purity. So he's, he's making it like Adrian did something to them. Yeah. Victimizing. I can never hold. He's victimizing himself. It's insane. I can never hold anything from Diane, nor she from me. She knew in my eyes that something was wrong the moment I decided to confess. When I did tell her, I thought the very life in her had been torn away. She was angry, she was violent, and she was broken. For Diane, she had been betrayed, deceived, and forgotten all in that one meaningless instant in November. The purity, which she held so dear, had been tainted in that one unclean act. Are you kidding me? And Diane had always held her virginity as one of her highest virtues. So maybe you should have honored that dickweed. When we agreed to be married, she finally let her guard down long enough for our teenage hormones to kick in. Ew. Gross. He's gross. And then that's later, like, what he says. When this precious relationship we had was damaged by my thoughtless actions, the only thing that could satisfy her womanly vengeance was the life of the one that had for an instant taken her place. That's basically when he talks about how Diane's parents had had similar problems, so he knew why Diane felt like this. He says, I was stupid, but I was in love. And then they talk about their plan. And he talks about exactly how they killed her, like described by me earlier in the show. Almost everyone experiences love and that doesn't come hand in hand with murder. No, no. I I mean, everyone on this show will probably come (laughs) to face with murder somehow. But in real life, people are shocked. Like, both Diane and David are the only Annapolis and Air Air Force Academy uh, cadets to ever be convicted of murder or accused of murder. All of their friends and teachers expressed disbelief. Adrian's mom is completely shocked. She says, these are not stupid kids. These are scholastic achievers. They destroyed Adrian's life. They destroyed their own lives. They no longer have careers. They could have had prestigious careers. They could have gotten married and had children of their own. That's not going to happen now. I think it's so stupid. It's beyond belief. My daughter is dead because of somebody being so jealous. It's bizarre. It's sad that all of these lives have been destroyed for no reason. She reserves her sympathies for Graham's and Samora's parents. I do actually feel for the parents. I really do. Almost 10 months ago to the day I was saying, no, 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 not my child. Now they're saying that. Wow. That gave me goosebumps. So much empathy. Yeah. She has so much kindness and love and forgiveness in her heart. No wonder Adrian was such a good girl. I know. Her mother is incredible. She was incredible because she had like that love in her life. Jesus. Her dad's reaction though, like he was, he was like dope. He's like, basically my wife is being super cool 
But also, fuck these kids. So there was <laughs> what no- What a good balance, huh? No wonder they had a great marriage. Yeah. Yeah. The mom is just like being very caring and open. And the father's like, you know what? He was watching a television report on the murder not long after the arrest. And he goes, why don't you say what he really is? He's a spineless little shit who could be manipulated so dramatically by a girl with so much passionate jealousy. What kind of spineless asshole are you? Okay, Go, well, dad. Amazing, too. <laughs> Yeah, get it, dad. Both the parents are amazing. Yeah. yeah. Like, get it, get it, dad. Like, I think that they're both equally at fault. But, like, if David's defense is that he was manipulated by Diane, confession, you had the choice. You were holding the, the gun. His confession is a sloppy hand job. <laughs> I like that. It really is. And it's it's just so flowery and, and stupid. And it takes all of the victimhood to himself. It's ridiculous. I mean, those officers walked in there and told him to last up to what he did. And the thing that's crazy is that's the way he actually sees how things went down. And that's when you get a confession like that, that kid is so messed up that that's how he actually sees the situation. So he sees it as that girl ruined his purity with Diane when it's actually him. Mm -hmm. And that's why I don't trust whatever he did with Adrian. I don't trust that he was a decent and good guy with her. No, I, you know, he, and she, the dynamic when he came to pick her up the second time wouldn't have been like that. It wouldn't have been as easy peasy. You know what I mean? Like he wouldn't have reached out. I don't know. The whole thing is real fishy. And yeah, she can't defend herself. It's so fishy. She can't, she can never say what happened either time. She can't say why she agreed to see him again. She can't say like what happened the first time. Um, so during this period when the kids are first attained, they continue their obsession with each other. The prosecutors can't originally get them to turn on each other and their attorneys can't get them to stop writing letters to each other. So they're still in communication and they still like at this point, Diane is still completely in denial. She keeps telling people that they're still going to get married, that they're going to get like out of the charges somehow, and they're going to still end up together. And over time, their trust and codependency is broken down because they're both in prisons away from each other while they're awaiting trial. And by the time they each go to trial in 1998, they're broken up. Both of their defenses for two of their trials is that they were present, but the other person actually did the killing. So they both are trying to pin the physical murder on the other Which person. Which is weird because it's kind of true. Because you don't know if – It's kind of true. He killed her they and both- then he shot her. So yep. when you were telling the story, I was like, man, if they just walk away and, you know, she dies later on from head trauma, it's like he really was just like a He really accomplice. didn't do it, although he still did lure her. Of course, so of course. I feel like he would have gotten it no matter what, but still he could have driven away. But we also don't know. He said that in his confession that he wanted to leave. You know, so we don't, we can't trust yeah, what he, he says. He still took the gun and shot her. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he confessed. And then, he, no, so he confessed in his, in his original confession that wasn't with an attorney that was at the Air Force Academy. He, he wrote out that entire confession where he says he shot okay. her. Okay. But then in the trial. But at his trial, it changes and they not only say that he didn't shoot her, that, you know, Diane did. But they also say, so his attorney tries to say that he never had sex with Adrian at all. And they get a cross-country coach to testify that she actually drove Adrian home that night. Is that true? Well, no. Because later on, when David is sentenced and he's in prison, he completely recants. He said that his attorney made him say that. 
that maybe it wasn't the night that the cross country teacher thought the cross country coach thought she drove her home. And it might've even been a different night that David had sex with her, but he definitely had sex with her. And that was the impulse for the crime. And he wishes that he had stuck to his earliest confession and he wishes he had just pled guilty rather than not guilty to be more honest. Because at this point, when he says all this, he's been in jail for a long time. He's studying in the seminary to become like a priest and he's trying to be completely honest about his previous ills. So it was a lie. All of their, their shit is lies. I think the only difference is that later on in life, it seems like David's just like, no, my first confession was right. And his first confession lines up with exactly what Diane's first confession was when they approach her and they're like, David told us what happened. She says everything the same way. And so then this has to be the real story. Report. That's so weird. They change it. It's because they both were tried separately. So the the jury doesn't know the stories. And I don't know if their confessions were th- thrown out. Yeah. But like they can melt, make up a story. And that's what attorneys do. It doesn't have to be true. It just has to be good enough to get the person off. Crazy. So they both are charged and convicted with capital murder. And in Texas, capital murder carries a mandatory sentence of either life in prison or the death penalty. So they avoid the death penalty only because of Adrian's parents asking for it to be taken off the table. So when Adrian's mom, Linda, is interviewed, she says, it's difficult to see your child die, but to see two other children die is pointless. I'm obsessed with her. Like, where right? is she? Right? Isn't she world? just a hero? Yes. No. I, mean, I just like, like, she's so, like, total chills because she's incredible. I, I don't know if I'd be that forgiving. Life dealing with this is way more punishing than. Yeah, let make them sit in a hole for the rest of their natural life and think about it. So uh, they get life, but with the possibility what? of pat- parole. Yeah. Life with the possibility of parole after 40 years. So they have to serve a minimum of 40 years. So in 1998, which is the same year they're both convicted, Brian McMillan's family sues the county for $13 million, And ultimately, they come to an agreement and they get an undisclosed settlement. Amazing. Thank God. So good. I'm so happy Amazing. for Kennedy's family. That was horrible. And so that's the silver lining for what they went through. And I guess Brian at the time of, I read the article in 1998, it was from 1998, and Brian was in community college and he was doing well. Good. So I hope Brian's life is good out there. In 2003, Diane marries another inmate from another prison named Stephen Mora. They've never met in real life, but he began writing to her because he had a crush on her based on her media appearances. Jesse, how do you He's get married per- to someone that you've never met? <laughs> it's it's called a it was the first in this county to do a proxy marriage. So this guy's in prison for auto theft burglary and threatening someone related to one of his cases. Okay, that is and so they do less a proxy marriage an innocent teenager. Oh my god, yeah, he's just a scumbag. Yeah. They do a proxy marriage which is basically like you have two representatives of yourself. So in this case her mom and one of his male friends stepped up in front of a judge and got married on their behalf. I don't get how they have the right. So they're to not do legally this. only those two are legally married, but I I mean I feel like they should have lost 
the rights. But don't worry, she gets divorced in 2008. Oh, and from the man she never met. She gets divorced from the man she's never met. (laughs) I wonder if he got out of jail and then like was like, no, I want to date a real life woman. (laughs) Basically, I think what happened was he was in jail. He thought she was hot. He's writing to her. And then later he gets out and he's like, no, I would like to be with a woman who can sleep with me. Thank you. So it looks like David also marries by proxy. You are lying. Or like, no, he also gets married sometime around 2010. He reveals on this blog he had, apparently he very, for a very short period of time, he had a blog trying to raise attention to prisoners' issues. And he made an offhand comment in one of the entries saying he was recently married. But we don't know anything about it. So he could still be married. He could not be married. So who knows? So that's what David's life is. In 2007, Diane goes on Dateline. So they feature her like in prison. Her new story is that she and David were breaking up and he used the murderer to tie her to him that she wanted to leave him and that he was doing it to force her to stay with him. She denies taking any part in the murder. Like she did not hit her with the weight. She didn't do that. She says the only thing she did was help clean up the car afterwards. It was a stupid confession. She didn't mean it. She was just scared. Um, And so they ask her, Dateline asked her if she'd be willing to take a polygraph. And she agrees But the administrator repeatedly needs to tell her to stop this exaggerated breathing she's doing, which apparently is a countermeasure for polygraphs. Like some people say if you do some extended weird breathing, you can like get, you can like lie but pass. So she's doing that. And the guy keeps telling her to stop doing it. And he believes at the end of it, he's like, I think she failed anyway. Like she still failed, but it's so hard to tell because she's breathing so weird. And so they had three other outside like polygraph experts come in to try to like review what happened. And they're like, I think she also lied, but you can't tell because she's being so weird. And so Diane says later that she wasn't trying to trick the polygraph. She was nervous and hyperventilating. And Dateline's like, yeah, yeah, total victim mentality. Dateline's like, okay, this is, you're full of shit because we gave you the questions all in advance. Like there's no, if you were telling the truth, you wouldn't be nervous. We literally gave you the questions like two weeks in advance. You knew exactly what you're going to be like asked. I love that. So. Oh my God. I know. It's so funny. So Diane reports that the last contact that David ever had with her was when he sent her a Christmas card in 2001 and she never responded back. So that is the end of the tragic and stupid relationship between Romeo and murderette David Graham and Diane Zamora. Jessica Ann, that was epic. That was epic. Yeah, it's just so sad. I feel like, wait, no, we should do a cheers for Adrian, who's a life like lost way too soon. And I feel like in how sensational the story became, I think it all became about Diane and David, obviously, but we should not forget this beautiful light that was stamped out way too soon. So, and her parents, to her awesome parents, to her little brothers out there somewhere. We remember Adrienne. We think she's fantastic. She lives on in our hearts and we're thinking about her. And this story is like for her and for you guys and not to glorify what those assholes did. 
Cheers. Cheers. Oh, and wait, right before we get to the, um, we can totally edit this out later, but I thought it was the most incredible side story I've ever heard. So in Peter Meyer's book, Blind Love, he <laughs> talked about this 1993 murder that took place in the same town. Cause he was like talking about all the different deaths that's taken place in this town. Okay. And this was one of the craziest things I've ever heard. So he writes, And many Mansfield residents were still talking about Stephen Robards, a 38-year-old divorce man whose 1993 death was considered natural until Robards' teenage daughter, Marie, a transfer student to Mansfield High, the same high school where Adrian and David went, confessed to a friend a year later. She had wanted to live with her mother in a different town, Marie told her classmate, classmate. So she had poisoned her father by slipping barium acetate barium acetate stolen from the high school chemistry class into his takeout Mexican food. Holy shit. That's insane. And then what happened? She, she was like 14. No, she was convicted of murder in 1995. <laughs> she was released. She was released on parole in 2003. So that means she only spent like eight years in prison yeah, but she was 14, and so apparently like she, that happens like when you're a kid yeah because you just go to juvie really but apparently she's still around but she's living under a new identity so it's good hopefully this town had some i hope she regrets you know, this is why this is teenagers you, you know what this what? is teenagers scare the living shit out of me look what these people do also maybe her dad was a dick <laughs> yeah we don't know he could have been a dick you know, we like we don't know what's going on there. Yeah, poisoning, poisoning the Mexican food though is so raw. Like, so many I would never do that to your Puerto Azul. Oh God, don't ruin Puerto Azul for me. Free, free shout out for Puerto Azul. We love you. <laughs> Guys, we're so excited right now to have set up most of our socials. Our Twitter is at Love Murder Pod. Instagram is lovemurder.love. Website is also lovemurder.love. Yeah. <laughs> so we're mostly lovemurder.love. And so in closing, do not be a murderous teenager. And remember, you're only one bad relationship away from getting murdered. <laughs>